0: Thank you, Tim. Well, we're still early in our study of the Gospels. Aren't you excited to to walk with Jesus? We're in Luke chapter 2, and we are going to conclude what's known as the birth narratives with the last event that Luke identifies in this series Of narratives of Jesus' early, early days. And at this juncture, he's 12 years old. It's a familiar passage to many, and this is the passage where he is found in the temple by his parents. And hopefully, uh, there is much for us to learn. Let's look and begin at verse 39 of Luke chapter 2. Just read along with me uh, to the end of the chapter. Luke writes, he says, When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Every year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, They went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they didn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days... They found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. We want to talk about growth this morning. The implication, obviously, is Jesus' growth, but also our growth. Are we growing? What comes to your mind when you hear the word growth? Most of us think of that word when we step on the scales, (laughs) or we go to buy a new pair of pants or something. Oh my, I've grown. Or maybe we think about growth particularly when, for maybe for the very first time, we have to look up at our children w- when we talk to them. How many parents know what I'm talking about? All of a sudden you're going, Whoa, you have grown. When did this happen? Growth is such a natural part of our world that we, I think we sometimes simply just take it for granted. Uh, we take for granted the growth of our children. I, I marvel at years and years and years of standing at those stairs and watching you guys come up the stairs and watching your kids come up the stairs and, and watching the kids grow. It's just astounding to me. And in fact this morning there were a number of children came in and I'm just looking at them and they're just, just sprouting right up. But sometimes we take that for granted. Sometimes we take for granted the just the growth of our of our gardens, if you will. You know, we water them, we expect them to grow. Sometimes we take for granted the growth of our investment portfolio. It should be growing, shouldn't it? After all, I got such good advice. And these things, quite frankly, on a day-to-day basis, don't, don't really much concern us. We just take growth generally for granted. But what really does concern us is when things stop growing. If our children fail to grow. If that garden that we've worked so hard and cultivated doesn't grow. Or if our investment portfolio fails. These things are cause for concern to us. Then we take notice. At Christmas time, we we again, we celebrate the birth of Jesus and there are so many songs and so many carols written that we sing and are so familiar to us that celebrate and mark his unique birth and his unique person, isn't that true? But what about songs written to celebrate his growth? I don't know of any songs that celebrate his growth particularly. Or do we just simply assume this part of Jesus' young life? He just grew up. Now, if you look into the, this passage, you'll notice in verses 39 that <clears throat> Luke has told us about his parents, and he has presented to us in the preceding Versus a compelling picture and testimony that Jesus is the Son of God. First of all, we had the testimony of the angel Gabriel to Mary. This child will be called the Son of God. We had the, the testimony through Zechariah's prophecy in chapter one, speaking about this one who would come and redeem and save his people. Early in chapter two, Uh, We recall the angel's testimony to the shepherds and then certainly uh, Simeon's testimony about this child to Mary. But in our passage here, Luke turns from the testimony of all these other people about Jesus being the son of God and he turns now for the very first time to the testimony of Jesus himself. And it's in this passage where Jesus himself, he will identify himself as the son of God. Luke reveals that at the age of 12, Jesus already possesses a complete understanding of his nature and of his mission. How many parents do we have? At the age of 12, would you want your children to have a good, well-developed understanding of their nature and their mission? Yes. Sadly, that's not the case. But here, Jesus does have that understanding, that comprehension. He had a well-developed, now these are two words, two concepts that are important for us to get a hold of. He had a well-developed perspective, perspective of his, who he was, perspective of life, perspective of his life. He had well-developed priorities. Those are two key words, two key phrases, two key concepts that all of us, all of us can hopefully grasp and benefit from and flesh out in our own life. And we can work with using those as guiding, guiding truths, guiding concepts in raising our kids, helping them develop a perspective, helping them develop priorities. And at 12, Jesus has that. In this, the only recorded incident from Jesus' childhood, we have the only words He is recorded to have said before the start of his public ministry. From his birth to this point, from this point till he's 30 years old, this is the only place in the Bible we have Jesus speaking to us. This is the only record. Now there are lots and lots of extra biblical writings that speak about Jesus saying and doing all sorts of crazy things. Uh, but they are not based on the truth. The Bible is the truth. The Bible is the truth. The Bible gives us exactly what God wants us to know. So he, here we have his only words. Luke's inclusion of this incident, by the way, is very significant for a number of reasons. It proves that Jesus' identity as the Son of God incarnate was not something that was thrust upon him by the messianic expectations of the day. The Jews lived, when Jesus came, the Jews lived in a time of great messianic expectation. They understood, they knew the prophecies, they knew Daniel's words. They knew what the Messiah would be doing. So they lived with a great sense of expectation. We have modern scholars and critics, and, 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 and really since the, since the time of Jesus, there have been critics and scholars uh, debunking or trying to debunk and, and, and diminish uh, Jesus' deity. And so uh, these critics have, have, have said lots of things, and, and many of the things they've said are coherent with what we're talking about right now, that Jesus really wasn't the Son of God. He wasn't really the Messiah, but that expectation that the people had thrusted upon him. Also, it, it, there was a, a sense in which, and there's a criticism, that uh, Jesus' followers, that Jesus' followers uh, made this expectation. They put it on him. They, after his death and resurrection, uh, he, they talked about him simply as being the Messiah. It wasn't really true. It was an invention of them. Nor was it something he assumed for himself when he began his public ministry. He just said, you know, they're expecting a Messiah, so I'll just assume that. In a lot of ways, we do that. We do that for people. We, we try to make heroes, don't we? We make people heroes. Or people assume their own, their own heroic posture. So we understand those dynamics. And right here, though, By Jesus' own words, he debunks all of that. He says, no, I am the son of God. This is very, very important. This was his true identity. And he was fully aware of it by the age of 12. And this is 18 full years before he starts his public ministry. You have to appreciate this. Who he is and how he has grown how he has matured even to the age of 12. He has 18 years yet before he starts his public ministry. Do you suppose he's going to grow more? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he tells us that in the last verse. Now, again, I, I reference verse 39. And In verse 39, we're told that Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord. Now that remark references, if you go back into chapter 2, verses 21 through 24, it references all all that had to do with the presentation of Jesus in the temple, with his dedication. So they fulfill all the requirements of the law to dedicate their infant son. And so when they had done that, Luke says, that they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. Joseph and Mary's obedience to the law of the Lord was not just some simple legalistic, ritualistic expression. Joseph and Mary rather loved God. They were godly parents. The law of the Lord expressed to them God's will and God's purpose. And Luke is reminding us that Jesus will be raised in a home by parents who honor God, honor his will, and honor his purpose. Quite simply, Jesus was raised in a godly home by godly parents. And I submit to you the next verse, verse 40 that follows on, tells us that he grew and became strong, was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. That was not solely due to his parents, but I I suspect that his parents' influence had a tremendous impact on him. Their reverence for God, their reverence for God's will, their readiness to obey God, to do what God said, had a tremendous impact on his life, notwithstanding the fact that he is the son of God himself you would expect him to be raised in that kind of environment. And all of us as parents, we we want to aspire to being those kinds of parents. And it is hard work, is it not? To raise kids today. Now, we don't have any other information about Jesus during his childhood, his early adulthood, prior to 30. We're just simply told that he grew, he developed, as all children develop, though he was unaffected by sin. He developed physically, he developed spiritually, he grew physically as well as the human body could grow. He became strong, as strong as a child could grow. He was filled with wisdom as much as a child could be filled. Jesus did not possess all of the wisdom of the mind of God as an infant, as a toddler, even as a young child. But clearly, by the age of 12, the divine fullness of God's wisdom had come to fruition in his mind. And the grace of God was upon him. Later on, when he ba- he's baptized, you recall, the heavens opened and the dove descended on him and The voice came out and said, behold, this is my son whom I love, my only son, with whom I am, what, well pleased. The idea is the grace of God is upon him. And so Luke tells us right now, revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, that that he's growing, he's growing, he's growing, he's on a path, and God's grace is upon him. Now, where was Jesus raised? He was raised in Manhattan Beach, Beverly Hills. No, the good side, the good suburbs of Jerusalem. No, he was raised in a in a despised place, wasn't he? Nazareth. He was raised in Nazareth, an obscure place, uh, reproached by other Jews or despised by other Jews, as evidenced by uh, Nathaniel's remarks when he heard Philip call him and say, "You know, we found Jesus of Nazareth." And what does Nathaniel say? say? Nazareth stinking Nazareth, no good thing can come out of Nazareth. So, I mean, and, and here's Nathaniel, a man who in, in whom Jesus identifies as no guile. So, you know, you're getting a straight scoop from Nathaniel. He's not biased or prejudiced. He's just telling the truth. That was, a, that was the prevailing opinion among Jews about Nazareth. And so here's Jesus growing up in Nazareth. Where was Jesus born? In a stable, wasn't he? Humble, low birth. Where does he grow up? He grows up in a despised place. Do you see a pattern? It's not so much where you're born. It's not so much where you grow up. It's, it's what your perspectives are, what you grow up with, what your priorities are. And Jesus, quite simply, just by virtue of the fact where he was born and where he grew up, clearly is identifying with people of what? Low position. Identifying with people in the most severe, humble circumstances. We can't use our circumstances as excuses, can we? No. We're, we're beckoned to look to him. And as God's grace rests on him, God's grace will rest on you and I. As we too grow, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus knew. He knew what it was to be born and brought up in a despicable place. From the very first, as the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, from the very first, he made himself nothing. Now, as we would expect of a godly Jewish family, pilgrimages to Jerusalem for uh, Passover, for the holidays, were an annual and customary affair. And again, this is reflected in the passage Joseph and Mary, this was their custom to go to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And therein, you see their perspective. You see their priorities. God is first. God's kingdom is first. God's will is first. We're going up to honor God. You come to church. You're you're in church. Because why? God wants us to assemble together. I read, I think I don't know if I told you about this, I was reading in Zechariah, did I mention this last week, or the week before? This is a little aside. I was reading in Zechariah a few weeks ago, and, uh, and, and I've read Zechariah a number of times, and, and I'm in the last chapter, and I'm reading the last several verses of, of the last chapter of Zechariah. And do you know how sometimes a verse just jumps off the page at you? And you, you read it a hundred times. And all say, "Whoa! I never saw that before. It, it, this happened to me." I'm reading in Zechariah, and it's it's when God says at the end time, He says, "All the nations of the earth will come and worship me in Jerusalem." Remember that passage? And He says, "But those nations that do not come, because apparently there'll be nations who will not worship Him in Jerusalem. Those nations that do not come and worship, they will have no rain." And I will send a plague upon them. Now that jumped off the page at me, and I'm thinking, my mind immediately went to Hebrews 10:25. Do not forsake the what? The assembling together as is the habit of some. Does God want us to gather together and come and worship Him? How serious is it? It's so serious, you'll send a plague. Your life won't flourish. I think it's reasonable to make that application. Worship is important to him. So here you've got this family. They've got their their perspective correct. They've got their priorities correct. They're up in Jerusalem and they have come to worship God. They are, in effect, doing what Jesus said seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Everything else God will take care of. Putting God first, I would submit to you, and I think you'd agree with me putting God first is an incredible, amazing, great, absolutely critical example to children. If you're a parent, they've gotta see God is first in your life, really. Not just in name only, not just in words only. Kids learn really quickly, do they not? They are like little sponges. They just soak up everything. And they quickly learn what parents really care about, don't they? They watch, they just watch. They watch our lives. What my parents really care about. They watch how we spend our time. They watch where we invest our energies. They watch how we live. And they follow us. Most of us have heard stories about Kids that have grown up in church, and, and when they get to be such and such an age, they, they disappear. They could care less. God is a, is, is a non entity to them. And they, and they go, what, What's the matter? We raised them in church. Yeah, but apparently they saw a difference between you at home and you in church. Almost invariably, I've heard, in, in, in just talking to those kids, my parents were hypocrites. They weren't really real. Joseph and Mary were real people, real believers, loved God. And they lived their lives as examples before their son. And we too have that great opportunity. Now we're told when they arrived in Jerusalem, you have to understand, at Passover time, the city is jam-packed with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pilgrims. Some people said upwards of nearly a million people would cram Jerusalem and the surrounding areas for Passover. So the city is packed with people, thousands of pilgrims, all trying to find a place to stay, all trying to find a place to celebrate the Passover meal. Do you think it's craziness there? I mean, we, we have no category for that. The city also would be filled with the noise of thousands upon thousands of sheep being prepared for what? The sacrifice, the Passover sacrifice. So you have to envision this. The crowds, the noise, the activity would be absolutely overwhelming. Joseph would have taken the family's lamb to the temple to be sacrificed. Might Jesus have been in tow do you think, I mean, if you, if, if, you were, if you were, would you want to go? Now, we don't know definitively, but I'm just going to submit to you that very possibly Jesus went with his father as part of his early instruction to take the lamb to be sacrificed. You can only imagine, you can only imagine what went through Jesus' mind seeing all these sheep all these lambs taken to be sacrificed. You can only imagine what went through his mind knowing that he was the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. This whole frenetic scene in Jerusalem had to make a profound impression on Jesus. And this was a special year for him by the way. He was 12 years old. Now Luke makes a point and you have to understand something of, of Jewish culture to, to grasp why this is so significant. When a Jewish boy reached 13 years of old, uh, 13 years of age, he became what's known as a son of the law. That's a technical term. We understand it now today as being reaching that age where he's bar mitzvahed in the Jewish community. Now that didn't actually come into play until 500 years after these events where that formal practice uh, began to be uh, experienced. But at 13, a Jewish boy uh, became a son of the law, which meant that he was now considered a man and he was expected now to keep the law as a man. And it was suggested that a boy be brought to the Passover feast maybe a year or two earlier, so like when he's 11 or 12, and in so doing, he would become familiar with the temple, familiar with the feast, familiar with the Passover, familiar with the laws. He would undergo some some preliminary instruction. All this in preparation for his 13th birthday when he would come for his very first official Passover. So this is, this is a unique point in his life. He's 12 years old. Very possibly he's coming to his very first Passover. We don't know that for sure. Now Luke doesn't describe any features of the Passover. He skips over it entirely. He picks up the account afterward when Joseph and Mary were returning to Nazareth. So we don't have any, any information about what went on during the Passover. So Joseph and Mary are, back, are, are, are going back to Nazareth. However, somebody is not with them. Who's not with them? That's right, their son. Jesus didn't leave with them to travel back to Nazareth. Usually, people traveled in large groups or caravans for two reasons. One, for community, and two, for safety. Because there were robbers and, and such on the roads back then, and And so people traveled in large groups. Usually the women and the children traveled at the front part of the caravan, and they started out much earlier uh, than the men because, of course, women would walk more slowly, and if you're dragging kids with you, that's going to slow you down, right? How many know that (laughs) men like to move and get going? Right? Come on, catch up, let's go, let's go. This is why very often when families, husbands and wives come up the stairs, I'll always grab the husband and say, walk with your wife. <laughs> She's generally six steps behind. I said, she'll appreciate that. Trust me, my wife has instructed me well. <laughs> so the women and children would start much earlier than the men. The men would start later and they, because they traveled much more quickly. And then the two groups wouldn't meet until the evening encampment was reached. Now, again, as I said earlier, it was possibly Jesus' first Passover. No doubt Joseph thought that Jesus was with Mary, and Mary thought that Jesus was with Joseph. And not till they met. That evening at the encampment did they discover he wasn't with either one of them. And they, they went amongst all their, their friends and relatives. They can't find him. And he's missing. Is Jesus ever missing? <laughs> no. When they discovered that he wasn't with them all and wasn't with the camp and the company, after the first day, Luke says they go back to Jerusalem. Now you have to appreciate this. They're one day, a whole day out of Jerusalem. That means to go back, there's a whole nother day of travel back. That's two full days he's missing. Then Luke says, they spend a third day searching for him. And you have to know that Jerusalem is packed with pilgrims still. This is the end of the eight days of the celebration. And uh, there's still probably lots and lots of people coming in and out and craziness. Where are they going to find him? So three days, they're searching for him. Finally, they find him. Where, where did they find him? They found him at the police station. No, they found him at the mall. No, they found him at the skateboard park. No, no. He'd met a new friend in Jerusalem and he was at his house. They were playing computer games. No. Church, where did they find him? In the temple. They found him in the temple. Now, his staying back in Jerusalem was not an act of disobedience to his parents, nor was it the result of irresponsibility of Joseph and Mary. They had never before known him to do anything other than what they had expected him to do. He was responsible, he was obedient, he was sensitive, he was thoughtful, in every way sinlessly perfect. This act, however, of him staying back in Jerusalem would begin to mark a transition that would ultimately occur. Very important. Jesus is making a statement, among other things. And that statement is he must move away from the responsibility to his earthly parents to a responsibility to his heavenly father. This is his huge, huge statement. The temple courts were famous throughout Judea as places of learning. The apostle Paul, no doubt, studied in Jerusalem, perhaps in the temple courts under Gamaliel, one of the greatest of Israel's teachers. And at the time of Passover, the greatest rabbis of Israel would be in Jerusalem and they would all be assembled in the temple courts and they would be assembled there to teach and discuss the great great truths of the Bible, of God's word, amongst themselves. You can imagine everyone's there, all the great scholars, all the great teachers are there in Jerusalem on Passover in the temple courts. What do you suppose one of the real, real topics of conversation would be among those rabbis at this point in Israel's history. What do you think? Messiah. The coming Messiah. That's right. Because there was a great sense of messianic expectation and hope at that point in history. So that would be probably a major topic of conversation among them. Can you see how, how the, all this is dovetailing? Jesus would have been, no doubt, very eager for the opportunity, which would never have been available to him in tiny, insignificant Nazareth, to dialogue with some of the greatest minds in Judaism. He can hardly wait to get to the temple. He can hardly wait. He no doubt wanted to hear their views. He wanted to hear the rabbi's views on the Old Testament and more particularly, probably, He wanted to hear their views on messianic prophecy. He wanted to hear their views, no doubt, on the sacrificial system. He probably wanted to hear their views on Isaiah's prophecies, particularly Isaiah 53. He probably wanted to hear their views on the law. And how the Messiah would fulfill the law. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on the wall? (laughs) Luke says that Jesus was listening. And he was asking questions. (laughs) What questions might he have been asking? Who do you think this is? What does this mean? But not only that, He was giving answers to their questions. They were were posing questions to him, and he was answering their questions. And his answers and his questions revealed phenomenal knowledge and understanding. So much so that Luke says that everyone was amazed. They were astonished. They wondered at his understanding and his answers. Listen to Psalm 119. The psalmist says, I have more insight than all my teachers. I have more insight than all my teachers. Why? For I meditate on your statutes. You meditate in God's word, you learn God's word, you learn the truth, you will have more insight than anybody. He goes on and he says, I have more understanding than the elders. Wow, more understanding than the elders. Why? For I obey your precepts. Don't we tell our kids, they, don't, they may not fully understand something we tell them to do. We said, just do it. Just obey me. Just do what I say. You'll, you'll figure it out later. You'll understand later. Don't we expect them to obey us? Rather than give some big old long drawn out explanation and try to fill in the blanks for them, we just say, just do what I say. Trust me. You'll see it'll work out. God says the same thing to us. Just trust me, obey me, do what I say. You'll, you'll have understanding after you do it. You'll, you'll, go, you'll go, aha, the light will go on, right? Am I making sense? So the same thing is true here. I submit to you that there are two striking lessons for us as parents and as well for our children. Number one, and I put them in your notes and terms of true or false. It's kind of obvious, but the first one is that every opportunity to learn the truth should be ignored. Would you agree? No. I mean, logically, we're sitting here saying, no, no, no. But the reality is, is do we grasp every opportunity to learn the truth? No, we don't. We have other competing priorities. Remember, it's a matter of what? Perspective and priority. The second truth, second principle is we should thirst for knowledge and understanding. I want to know the truth. When I first became a believer, I'd never read the Bible. I'd never read anything about the Bible. I was into everything else but the Bible, and then somebody put a Bible in my hands, I could not read it enough. I still can't read it enough. I am an insatiable reader. I'm a slow reader, I'm a terrible reader, I don't remember what I read. (laughs) But I'm constantly reading. I I have a thirst to know and to understand and gain insight. Listen to what Jesus says, John chapter eight. If you hold to my teaching. Now what's the opposite of holding to his teaching, do you think? Yeah, if you ignore it, disregard it. Count it insignificant. Goes in one ear and out the other. We all know that stuff. If you hold to my teaching, if you hold on to it, if you grasp it, and once you do that, It's going to affect your life and your life is going to begin to change. Do you agree with me? If you hold his teaching dear, if you take it to heart, if you fill your mind, something's going to happen to your life. You may not get a pink Cadillac, but something's going to happen to your life. If you hold to my teaching, You are really my disciples. Oh. How does one know that he or she is really a disciple of Jesus? How do you know you're really a disciple of Jesus? What has he just told us? The fact that you hold to his teaching. You're following Jesus. It's not simply that you think you're saved. The evidence that you are saved is the fact that you are following who? And it's not just lip service. He came into this world to set us free from the power and the grip of Satan and hell and death. The question is do we just simply take that for granted or do we grasp and hold on to that and follow Him? Or who else are we following? What else are we following? Am I making sense? He says, then you're really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will, what? The truth will have no effect on your life. <laughs> no, the truth will set you free. When you learn the truth, man, a whole new world opens up to you, don't it? doesn't it? Let I mean, just think about learning to read. Just learning to read. That's, in a sense, learning the truth, isn't it? Does a whole new world open to a person who's never learned how to read? I've talked to people over the years. As adults, they never learned to read. And finally, someone sat down with them and taught them how to read. And man, their life changed. They were set free. The Bible is God's word. The Bible tells us how to be set free no matter what it is we're in bondage to, if you're in bondage to fear, anxiety, if you're in bondage to drugs or alcohol, if you're in bondage to sex and pornography, if you're in bondage to sin and, and, and grief, and all that, he says, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You've got to know his word. You've got to hold on to his word. You've got to believe his word. You've got to say, Lord... Your word says, you love me, I trust you, I know, thank you that you love me. I don't feel it, but I believe it. Second Peter 1:5 puts it this way. Peter says, "Make every effort. You have to ask yourself, am I making every effort to add to my faith, goodness, and to goodness, knowledge? Am I growing? Am I growing? Proverbs 3.13, blessed is the man who finds wisdom. See, we think blessed is the man who finds gold. Blessed is the man who scores. Blessed is the man who finds a winning lottery ticket. Whoa, man, if God just caused a lottery ticket to float down out of heaven for me and I could be a $47 million winner, that would be it, I'd be set. And set for destruction. Blessed is the man who finds wisdom, the man who gains understanding. Get it. Get wisdom, get understanding. They are more precious than gold and rubies, the Bible says. Proverbs 4, 5. Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget my words or swerve from them. See, there's no growth without God's word, without God's principles, his truth in our life. Jesus' questions in the temple, his answers that he gave were penetrating. They were insightful. They were profound. His wisdom and knowledge far exceeded that of any 12-year-old that they had ever known. And this would not be the last time that Jesus would elicit wonder and amazement by the things he said. Now finally, after hours of anxious searching, Joseph and Mary find their missing son. And they were astonished. And they were astonished not so much at the fact that he was conversing with the rabbis and teachers. They were astonished by his location. I think, assuming that he was lost, No doubt they expected him to be searching for him, and yet they found him where? They found him in the temple, sitting calmly, dialoguing with the teachers of Israel. Any parent reading this account understands what happens next. Moms, what happens next? Who speaks first? Yeah. She can't keep quiet. Here's mom. A frustrated mother asking her budding adolescent son how he could have behaved this way, leaving his parents with a major anxiety attack. It's not Joseph calmly saying, "Son, we missed you," and the mother going, ah! "Moms, am I right?" Yes. Now look at Jesus' reply again, verse forty-nine. His reply is just as direct. He says what? Why were you searching for me? You have to appreciate this. Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Wow. I had to be here. Jesus had not again intentionally defied his parents. What he had done was to make evident at this early stage in his life, the necessary break that was to come between him and his earthly family. And he would later say that he had come to do the will of him who sent me, his father in heaven. Although that break wouldn't fully be realized for another 18 years, it. We see the beginnings of it right here in this particular passage. And Jesus, in his reply, expresses this definitive reality, this reality of Christianity that's fundamental. This is a core doctrine of Christianity. His statement is the very first time in Scripture that any individual claimed God as his personal father. He's claiming himself to be the son of God. Now, the Bible teaches clearly that Jesus is the Son of God. We saw that simply in, the, in all the birth narratives, starting with the angel Gabriel's remarks to Mary, and clear through the Gospels, and finally at the end, uh, by the centurion, the Roman centurion, standing under Jesus' cross, remember? And the centurion says, truly, this is the Son of God. It was Jesus' claim to be the Son of God, above all else, that infuriated the Jewish opponents, the Sanhedrin, the leaders that would lead to his crucifixion. Now, here's again some cultural background that is important to understand. The the term son in Jewish reckoning, in Jewish culture, the term son denoted more than just a male offspring. A young underage male was considered a boy so 12 years and under, you were considered, if you're male, you are considered a boy. It was only when that boy became an adult was he a son in the fullest sense. In other words, when he reached the age of 13, he became the son of the law. He became an adult in the fullest sense of that word. He became a son equal to his father. This is Jewish reckoning. He's equal to his father under the law and in terms of adult responsibility. And he was also uh, now able to receive all the privileges his father had reserved for him. So technically the term son in Jewish culture and reckoning meant equal to or one with. Now our culture and our society, we don't have that concept. This is why you have to appreciate the background to the gospels in the Jewish culture. So the term son, in this sense, doesn't refer to origin. It refers to nature, his nature. And the term is used to refer to Jesus Christ to establish the son of God, to establish his being of the same nature and the same essence as God, as his father. And he has the same rights and privileges as God himself. Now the Jewish leaders understood exactly, perfectly that he was claiming to be the son of God. They knew what he was saying. They understood this context. They knew he was making himself what? Equal with God. And in their context, this was what? Blasphemy. Cause for what? Execution. He's making himself equal with God. A lot of people are a little confused, son of God. We think of son in terms of of how we would interpret son. No, no, son of God meant God, the son, the second person of the Trinity, equal with God. The Jews understood that exactly and that drove them up a tree. Let me take you back to that phrase that he utters in the temple. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? I had to be. Where else would I be? I had to be. Where else would you expect to find me? Wouldn't you love to have your kids saying, I want to go to church. I got to be in church. I got to be with the saints. I got to be in a growth group. I got to be in the Bible study. Don't hold me back. How many parents would love to hear that from their kids early on? (laughs) Right? Yeah, again, you hear his perspective, you hear his priorities. What is your perspective on life? What is your perspective on your life? What are your priorities? Only you can answer those questions. Because quite frankly, it's not just an intellectual exercise, eternity hangs in the balance. And there are going to be a lot of people who are fooled when Jesus comes back. Do you recall? Many will say, "Lord, Lord," and what He says, "I never knew you. We never had a relationship." Yeah, but I did all this stuff. No, we never had a relationship. We a lot of surprised people. What are your perspectives, and what are your priorities? Can you say, as Jesus says, that you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Or are you seeking everything else in life? Everything else taking priority? It matters not, in the final analysis, what the circumstances surrounding your life are. God has engineered those. And he's engineered those to give you opportunity to choose him in the midst of those circumstances. Am I making sense? This is something we cannot warn enough about. Can we hear this enough? No, we need to hear it again and again and again, don't we? Do we need to be reminded? How many know I have a ministry of reminding You see, what is it that you absolutely have to do? What is it that you absolutely have to do? Where is it that you absolutely have to be? I have to be home because the game's coming on a little while. Whoa, what does that tell us? You see, others, others may not realize, others may not recognize God's call on our lives. That's immaterial. The real question is, do we recognize God's call on our life? Are our priorities becoming his priorities? Are our perspectives his perspectives? Am I making sense? Yes. Listen to the Apostle Paul. Paul encapsulates this perfectly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, he says this. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe is me. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. I've got to live my life for his glory. I've got to serve him. Not got to in terms of, but you know what I mean? Verse 50 tells us that even Joseph and Mary didn't understand what he was saying. And others would not understand. He would be misunderstood till the end of his life. He's misunderstood by Christians today, isn't he? Sometimes we read it, we don't, we don't understand. It takes us seeking after him. It takes us putting him first. It takes us reading and thinking and meditating. So we go, I get it. I understand now. I see it. Now at this juncture, in this, in this particular passage, there's a subtle shift of emphasis. I'm going to point this out because this underscores this reality that Jesus is now beginning to, to, begin to make the break from his responsibility under his earthly appearance to his heavenly father. And the, the shift comes... As the scene opens, uh, you'll you'll notice, if you read it carefully, that that Joseph and Mary are the subjects of the action. They're in the subject position. But as the scene unfolds, Jesus takes on a more active role. And this is for the first time in the gospel, by the way, because they're always talking about Jesus. He is always the object of the verb, not the subject, okay? And so now, for the very first time, we see a shift. He becomes the subject of the verb's. As the scene closes, we see him. He goes to Nazareth, accompanied by his parents. You saw, it's a subtle thing, but again, it's a statement by Luke, acknowledging that Jesus now is emerging. He's emerging from his youthfulness. He's emerging from his responsibility to his parents, and he is going to take on a more and more and more prominent role. For the first time, Jesus now begins to make this this step. Now, the temple event would be the very first fulfillment of Simeon's words to Mary. How many recall Simeon's words to Mary? What was the most compelling thing that he says to Mary? Anybody remember? A sword will what? pierce your heart. This event around the temple, Mary is beginning to see now that there's going to be this separation. They're in a the mother around that doesn't have separation anxiety when they anticipate their kids are going to be leaving. Here's the first fulfillment of that prophecy. A sword will pierce your heart. Am I making sense? She had much to think about. She had much to think about. She treasured these things in her heart, pondering these things. Mary had to realize that her son would now be her savior. She had to realize that she would have to exchange her parental authority over him for his divine authority over her. What a profound thing. And the the passage ends in verse 52 with this summary statement of his continuing growth. It reveals all that we know about the 18 years Jesus spent in Nazareth from the age 12 to the age of 30 when he would embark on his public ministry. We're told that Jesus grew in wisdom. His intellectual grasp of divine truth continued to grow. He grew physically in stature and spiritually in favor with God. No doubt strengthened by his victories over the assaults of temptation. Don't think that Jesus grew up and he wasn't tempted. The writer of Hebrews says that he was tempted at all points as we. And he he grew in strength as he resisted those assaults of temptation. Now, remember, he's having to live in the power of the Holy Spirit just like you and I are. He'd set aside his godly privileges and prerogatives, things innate to him, living in the power of the Spirit. And the reference, I think, to finding favor with men in that verse describes his increasing social maturity, but it also describes the respect that he commanded. He was a respectable young man. And when you are a respectable person, your life commands the respect of other people. They may not like you, but I promise you, they will, in their hearts, respect you. Now the question is, just read this last verse with me. Just read it all together out loud. Verse 52. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and men. See, the question is, can we say that about ourselves? Can you say that I'm growing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men? Is that not our goal? Is that not something God has set out there for us? Jesus is our example. He says, learn from me. Grow, grow, grow. It's all about what? growing. To be more like who? Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you again for your word. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us. Thank you for revealing to us these truths. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for every good thing. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for teaching us what it means to walk after you, to to hold firmly to your word, to not swerve to the right or to the left, but that your word is sufficient for our lives, that you have given us everything we need for life and for godliness. Father, we are humbled again this morning, reminded again of your sufficiency. We give you all the thanks, and we give you praise this morning. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. 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 Turn to your neighbor if you would, and as is our custom, pronounce a blessing on your neighbor, and if it's appropriate, only if it's appropriate, give your neighbor a holy hug and very possibly a holy kiss. Let's stand together and sing God's praises one more time before we dismiss.